Would you open up your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 10? As we continue our study through the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. Today we're studying verses 32 to 39. Any children here, uh, kindergarten to second grade can be dismissed to Children's Church, which you can find through the door over here by the piano. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10, 32 to 39. We're back in Hebrews after a little Easter hiatus. So we sort of march section by section through Hebrews. And let me read our text for the morning. It's Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 39. It says, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted, accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere. So that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. For in just a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. So, did anyone catch the Boston Marathon on Monday? I mean, I don't really watch marathons, but sort of just being in Boston, you have to watch the Boston Marathon. I was, you know, at the gym and was walking by one of the TV screens. So I stopped and, you know, watched East Africa trashing the rest of the world again. Like, oh, okay, there it is. So I watched a little marathon. I sort of did my, you know, checked off my box. Uh, maybe some of you have. Has anyone here actually run the Boston Marathon? Are we all fairly sane here? You have? Okay. Wow, you do too. Why? I, I don't... Uh, <clears throat> I, I used to run... I did run a little cross-country in high school, so I understand the sickness. But um, it, it's really amazing. I mean, 26 miles. And it's not just the race itself. It's the months ahead of time. Of preparation. I mean, it is a discipline for months. And then you don't, you don't know what's going to happen race day. I mean, anything can and will happen. Uh, my next door neighbor uh, just ran the Boston Marathon. He's run it before. And, uh, you know, I'd see him practicing early in the morning. I'd be taken off for work and he'd be coming in from like a, you know, 15 mile run or whatever he was doing, freezing in the morning. He's out there dedicated, doing his thing. Um, well, I guess the week right before the marathon, his wife was telling us he got sick. And I don't know if he had a science infection or whatever. He gets on antibiotics that Saturday. He's on antibiotics Saturday, Sunday. And then Monday comes and he's like, I'm going to run this race. <laughs> Even though he was, you know, you know half well. <clears throat> and I guess his wife was telling us he got to about mile 10. And he felt like he could have dropped out of the race completely at that point. He was just so dragging down. But he decided, you know, I've trained, I've done this. And he gutted it out another 16 miles and finished the race. I mean, that's what you do. At that point. And then I was thinking about that. I was like, man, that is such a picture 
of what it's like to live the Christian life. Following Jesus is a marathon. It is not a sprint. It's not a 5K fun run. It's not a family bike ride day. Following Jesus is like an ultra, ultra marathon. You have to understand that if you're going to become a Christian. It's not, it's not like you become a Christian and God waves the magic wand over your life and bloop, all your problems go away, everything gets better. Oh, contraire. In some ways, it gets harder. The Christian life is a marathon that takes endurance and perseverance. And there's those times when you hit mile 10 and you're like, I am done. I want to leave this thing. Mile 12, mile 15. You get to the foot of Heartbreak Hill, of which there are many in the Christian life. And you have to tell, ask yourself, am I going to keep going? The book of Hebrews, since we're back in Hebrews, I know we've been out of it for a couple weeks, but just to orient us again, remember the people to whom Hebrews was originally written. It was written to mid-marathon Christians. It was not primarily written to brand new baby Christians who were at the starting line where the gun had just gone off and they're like, woo, here we go, and they're high-fiving and they're excited. This was written to Christians at mile 10 or mile 12 or mile 16 where they're, they're in pain and, and it's difficult. And there's a danger they're facing which is dropping out of the race. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. <clears throat> it says, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great context, contest in the face of suffering. So, he's saying, hey you guys, remember those early days. In other words, like I said, he's writing to old guard Christians who've been followers of Christ for some length of time, such that he can say, remember way back in those early days when you first started out? Oh yeah, I remember way back then. Well, that's not where you're at now. There's been some time. So these are Christians who've been at it for a while. And as I said, they're in danger of dropping out of the race. Something has happened to them. Their run has become a jog. And their jog has become a walk. And the walk has become a standstill. And now they're looking at the sidelines, thinking about slipping under the rope and going out and just bagging the whole thing and have some pizza and be done with it. They want to get out of the race. Let's look at some of the warnings in Hebrews. Uh, go back to Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> Notice this language throughout Hebrews. The main purpose of Hebrews, the primary objective in writing this book that the author wanted to accomplish was to reinvigorate flagging tired Christians. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that, what? We do not drift away. It's like, you guys are not paying attention anymore. You're not listening. You've got to get with it again. It's running a race, you've got to pay attention. You've got to be on top of where things are at with your body as you're running. Pay attention here. Don't drift away. Or look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Hebrews 3.12 See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Don't have a hard, unbelieving heart. Don't let sin creep in and, and ossify your soul. 
keep limber and fresh and following Christ. And this isn't just doubt. This is unbelief. They're starting to really not believe the promises of God. Or look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. He's worried that some of them may be on the path to falling short. Or look at chapter 5, verse 11. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You know, I thought by this time, having run this long, you'd be a lot further along in the race. But instead, you're way back here. You should be up there. You should be teachers telling others the ropes. But instead, you're way back weak and, and you need to be taught the ABCs of the race again. You know, where is your faith? Where is the growth? And then, of course, the passage that we saw last Sunday that Pastor Chris preached for us is on verse 26 of chapter 10. Remember last Sunday, Hebrews 10.26. If we deliberately keep on sinning, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. We can't keep on sinning. We have to break free. So, so do you get the picture here? Long-time Christians, middle of the marathon, in danger of compromising and, and dropping out of the race. Their, their run is slowing down and now it's become a jog or a walk or a standstill. And so the primary command, going back to our text, chapter 10, verses 32 to 39, look at chapter 10, verse 35. Here's the primary commands. So do not throw away your confidence, your boldness, your, your holy chutzpah to just keep at it in the Christian life. That's the negative command. Don't throw away your confidence, your boldness. Look at verse 36. Here's the positive command. You need to persevere. So Hebrews is being written to flagging Christians in the middle of the marathon, trying to inspire them and re-motivate them to keep pressing on in their faith and following Christ. Not compromise, not give in, not give up. That's what this book is for and that's what our passage is about. Before we go on to look at how the author is going to do that, maybe we should just stop and do a quick self-diagnostic. How are you running the race? How am I running the race? Where are we at in our running of the Christian life for those of us who are Christians? Um, are, we, are we running on pace? You know, to win a race, you have to be on pace. You've got to keep timing yourself. You've got to try to go X number of miles and X number of minutes. You're, you're uh, sort of gauging your water intake and your pacing and drafting. I mean, it's very strategic. And to run a race to win, you have to really be on top of it. You've got to be focused and alert and intentional. Is that how we're running the Christian life? Are we intentional? Are we really wanting to grow in our faith in Christ and, and pushing ourselves and and going for it. Or maybe our run has kind of slowed down to a jog. It's still going in the right direction, but you know, it's kind of taking it easy. Yeah, we go to church. Yeah, I mean, it's not like I've, I've given up on my Christianity, but it's, it's kind of a, a suburban complacency that is always creeping into our lives, I think, that we have to just be vigilant against, where we start slowing down in the Christian race. And, and yeah, it's not that we haven't given up, but we're just, yeah, you know, don't take it so seriously. Don't be so into it. You know, just relax a little bit. 
The problem is that a run becomes a walk, a jog, and then a jog becomes a walk. And maybe that's where you're at, where you're just barely going forward. And, and you've gotten caught up in the world. You honestly can't remember the last time you cracked the Bible on your own. You honestly can't remember the last time you really prayed and heard from God. And, and you just feel like you're dragged down. There's so many things that are pulling your heart away from the Lord. You're kind of halfway just sort of walking forward. Or maybe you've gotten to the place where the walk has become a standstill. You know, runners, they, they stand around like this and they're trying to recover from the race. And maybe you're standing around like that looking. And, and look, there's the sideline. Look at the crowds. Look, they're, they're tailgating over there. They got food. They got barbecue. They got drinks. There's music. They're laughing. What am I doing running this race? And you feel and hear the world sort of alluring you back in. Like, why, are, why am I doing this to myself? Why am I trying to live this Christian life? The world is right there. It looks so good. You know, why don't I drop out of the race and just go there? Someone was telling me uh, after the first service about a friend of theirs who trained for the marathon in Boston, got to the foot of Heartbreak Hill, looked at it, and just said, forget this. Ducked under the rope, went to a pizza parlor and ate a whole pizza. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's the world temptation. Why am I doing this to myself as a Christian? You know, I'm the only one. Everyone else is there in the world and I'm trying to follow Christ. It's hard. It's hard to keep going. Where are we at in the Christian life? Regardless of where you're at in the race, regardless of whether you are on time, on schedule, or whether you've got one hand on the rope and you're thinking about ducking under, the message of Hebrews is the same for all of us. And it's get back in the race. You've got to persevere. We can't give up our confidence. We need to keep pressing on in the faith. Notice how the author of Hebrews seeks to motivate us to keep going forward. Let's go back to our text now. There are two primary things that the author of Hebrews is going to do to try to jumpstart our racing. Uh, There's two things that he wants to do to stimulate present perseverance, to keep us going in our faith so that we don't slow down and don't stop and don't lose track of where we're going. Um, And the first thing he does is in verses 32 to 34. The first thing he does to motivate present perseverance is this. It's kind of interesting. He reminds them of past perseverance and faithfulness. So to get them to go forward in the present, the first thing he does is he takes them on a trip down memory lane to a time in the past when they were running the way they should. He's saying like, hey guys, remember. Remember how it used to be? Remember the good old days when you were really growing and striving in your faith? Look back at verse 32 again. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. So apparently, at some point in the past, the author is aware that the people to whom he's writing went through some big something. We don't know exactly know what it was. It was some kind of trial, some kind of persecution. You know, scholars speculate on what it could have been, but we don't ultimately know. We just know it was a tough period of persecution for their faith, probably when they were early on in their faith. And um, even though we don't know what this incident was or what specifically took place, we do know some of the details of what they had to endure. So verse 33 and verse 34 gives us the specifics. 
Sometimes you are publicly exposed to insult and persecution. So these people at some point went through a trial where they were publicly maligned for the Gospel and for Christ. That, that word there that says um, publicly exposed, that's a Greek word that originally meant to bring someone up onto stage. And it eventually took on the meaning of to kind of publicly humiliate somebody. So it's not just that the Christians got a little negative pushback from a few people. They, they were in the community publicly maligned and harassed for being Christians. Look what else happened. Verse 33. In other times, it says, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison. So, so not only was it just a couple of them being harassed, but they were doing so well back then that even when a couple of them harassed, they, were, they rallied around together. So it was a whole church that was unified. In other words, in those days, it, was, it wasn't just one Christian or two Christians. The whole church came together and even if it wasn't directed at them, they stood shoulder to shoulder with the people who were. And when they went to prison, they didn't just say, oh, you know, if I go visit them in prison, they might figure out I'm a Christian too and I might end up in prison, so eh, maybe I'll just send them a care package or something. You know, no, they went and stood with them. And they said, we're with this guy. We're together. We're a team. You attack one of us. You're attacking all of us. We're going to stand together as Christians. I mean, it was a, a beautiful moment for the church. They stood as a family and as a united front of faith against the world and were willing to suffer. But not only that, look what else it was like. Verse 34. They joyfully accepted the confiscation, says, of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So they got their stuff taken because they were Christians. Now again, we don't know exactly what happened. It could have been that the magistrates imposed some fine upon them or some tax or some penalty. It could be that when they went off to jail or perhaps got kicked out of the community for some time, their houses got looted. That, that word in Greek could mean to loot or to plunder. So it's possible, you know, it's like, oh, all the Christians are gone. Hey, look, no one's, you know, watching their stuff and, you know, guys are coming out with their stuff. Whatever happens, they actually lost possessions. So this was a really... Rough period of faith. And what amazes me is that adverb in verse 34. How did they accept the confiscation of property? Joyfully. That just blows my mind. You know? Every April 15th when I pay my taxes. (laughs) You know, they have these tea parties. I'm like, I've been having those in my head for 10 years. I mean, what are you talking about? I, I don't like it when anyone takes my money. And taxes are something that Jesus says we're supposed to pay. Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar and God what is God. So, I mean, I even have a command to do that and I struggle against people taking my things. Let alone, though, to have your things taken unjustly through persecution, but they accepted it joyfully. I just don't get it. What? Why were they so joyful? Because, verse 34, you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. I would posit to you that this is a snapshot of vibrant, committed Christianity. You know, what does it look to be a real, on-fire, devoted Christian? What does it look like? I think this is one great example of what that has to look like. To be willing to be insulted for your faith, 
to stand with other Christians in a church community in persecution, to be so confident in the promises of God that I'm even joyful when they take my present possessions. You know, we can all talk a good talk, but when they start taking, touching your stuff, <laughs> this takes real faith. So he's saying, look, there was a time in your past when you guys were on. You were on. You were on pace. You, were, you got it. And even though things were coming at you that were tough, you responded with faithfulness, perseverance, confidence. You didn't doubt the promises of God. And my friends, he's saying, what happened? Where did it go? So he makes the argument in verse 35. So... Therefore, in light of what I just said, this is the application, do not throw away your confidence. Verse 36, you need to persevere. Persevere in the present by remembering your previous faithfulness when you were on the ball. You know, don't forget that. You can have that again. Can you think in your own life as Christians of a time when you were really close with the Lord and you are really going for it in your faith, faithfully with perseverance. Maybe you went through a trial in your life in years past, months past, and man, it was tough. It was a really tough trial. You would never want to go there again. But you say, it was during that trial that I really got serious about reading the Word of God. I really got serious about following God. I made some important changes in my life to follow Christ more faithfully and have a consistent Christian witness. I, I would never want to go back to those days, but I wouldn't trade them for the world because I grew so much through that. Do you have a period like that in your life, perhaps as a Christian, where you can look back and remember what it was like to be a faithful, persevering Christian? I was doing that experiment with myself and I remember a time when I was 17 years old. I'd just been a Christian about five years. And it wasn't a trial, but it was, I'd say it's more like a challenge. I had just felt like God wanted me to, to go on a mission trip. And so I went just by myself with a little group. It wasn't our church. I just went with this, this group, mission group to Taiwan and went there for about uh, two months, ten weeks, something like that. And, you know, like I said, it wasn't a, a persecution or a challenge that way. But it was a challenge in that I was like 17 years old. I'm in a foreign country, don't speak the language, totally out of my element, and, and I'm supposed to go there as a missionary. And, you know, it was a little freaky. But it was just one of those times where, by God's grace, I said, you know what, I'm just going to do this, and I'm going to totally do whatever God wants me to do. And I adopted that mindset of, I'm just going to obey the Lord and take advantage of every opportunity He gives me. And so I was sharing my faith with people. I was faithful and reading the Scriptures every day and was learning from them and had significant times of prayer that I still remember to this day. And out of that whole experience, God used it to start calling me to ministry. And by ministry, I mean vocational ministry. I mean, all Christians are called to ministry. We're all called to minister for the Lord. But in the sense of a, you know, like a career of being a pastor. I didn't know what it was, but I was like, God, I want to go forward. I mean, it was a critical time in my spiritual development. Now, why do I tell that story? To boast? No, actually kind of the opposite. Because I look at my life now sometimes and I'm like, all right, now you're a pastor, now you have the degree from seminary. But do you have the same zeal you had when you were just a 17-year-old kid going out on faith for the Lord? Now, where's my zeal? Where's my commitment? Where's that, all right, God, whatever, whatever, I'll do it. I just want to 
serve you kind of attitude and willingness just to be all out and all in for Christ. And that's the challenge that that I see in this passage. Do you remember a time in your life when you were all out, all in for Christ? Do you remember what that was like? And then the question is, what is it that's keeping us today from doing that again? Is it the Lord that's holding us back? It's us. We need to go for it. So the writer of Hebrews says, persevere. Don't throw away your confidence. Live for Christ. But notice the second thing the author does to motivate present perseverance. The first is, he orients them to the past and he says, remember how it used to be? You can do that again by God's grace. But then the second thing he does in verses 35 to 39 is he orients them to the future. The second way he wants to push them on in the race is by reminding them of what's waiting at the finish line. So not just where you've come from, but let's remember. Let's look past Heartbreak Hill. Let's look past the next 16 miles. Let's remember where this whole thing is going to end up. And so he says in verse 35, So do not throw away your confidence. Why? It will be richly rewarded. Verse 36, You need to persevere. Why? So that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. There's a future reward. There's a future promise. We saw it back in verse 34 where it says, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Why? Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. It was that hope in the future that gave you confidence in the present. So it's kind of funny, isn't it? This little like time travel thing going on here. He's like, remember in the, verse 34, remember in the past when you were looking forward into the future and it kept you going into the present back then? But now in the present, remember that from the past to keep... Anyway, it's kind of like Star Trek with time travel and it, it's a little confusing. But it's like you used to look forward to the future better than you're looking forward to the future now. So get looking forward to what is across that goal line, that finish line in the race. And by the way, what is it that we're racing for anyway? What is that reward? What what are we doing this for? What's across the finish line? There's a lot of things. First of all, there's a crown. Just as the victor crosses the line and he gets the olive crown, there's a crown of righteousness awaiting us. And you know what else is across the finish line? There's glory. Glory. The glory of the end of the race where all the cameras are flashing and all the cheering takes place. There's glory across the finish line. And there's something else across the finish line. There's eternal life. You know, you breathe your last here as a Christian and then you take your first breath of eternal life forever and ever in God's presence. You know, this life eternal after dying and struggling in this life to be fed eternal life at the end of the race. And there's something else at the end of the race that Hebrews talks about. It's rest. There's rest at the end of the race. Not rest like we rest today, like pop a movie in and you know, eat some chicken wings and sit on the couch. Like, real rest. The kind of deep, soul-satisfying all-encompassing 
rest in the Lord that nothing in this earth can compare to. That, that final rest that we long for in this troubled, difficult marathon of a life. And of course, at the end of the race, who's standing there but the Lord Jesus Christ Himself? It is the Lord Jesus Christ who will put the crown on your head. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself will take the robes of glory and victory and wrap them around your shoulders. It's the Lord Jesus Christ Himself who will offer you the fruit from the tree of life. And the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, whose arms were nailed to a cross, will stand at the end of the race again with His arms open to embrace us in the eternal rest of salvation. You know, what's waiting at the end of the, of the line? Everything is waiting at the end of the line. Everything. Eternal life. And all of the blessings of salvation that our minds can't even begin to wrap themselves around. That's what we're running for. But here's the thing. So the writer of Hebrews is saying again and again, if you don't finish the race, you don't get any of that. You don't get the rewards if you don't finish the race. You have to finish. You know? Am I saying that we're saved by our efforts? No. What I'm saying is that if you're really a Christian and you're really following Christ, the evidence, the proof, the fruit, the result of salvation and true conversion is perseverance over time and finishing the race. If you are on the sidelines, you will not share in the end. You have to be in the race. You have to finish the race. You have to go across the goal line. And if we slip into the crowds, if we slip back into the, the sidelines, you know, you know what awaits the sidelines? It's wrath and destruction and hell and judgment. You know, there's just two ways to go. Forward or out. It's either forward or out. And we have to decide as Christians which way we're going. We need to press forward. Look at the warning in verse 37. For in just a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay, but My righteous one will live by faith. Those who are righteous, those who are saved, they, they live by faith, by trusting the promises of God. So we have to make a decision. It's a very binary either-or decision. Either we have faith in the promises of God and believe that God's salvation is real, though we can't see it, and that's what we strive for. Or the other choice is we disbelieve the promises of God. We believe that what we see on the sidelines is real and that that's what life is really about. There's really not a middle ground. It's either forward or out of the race. Verse 36, If he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. What would it look like for us? What would it look like for you to surge forward in your faith today? To redouble your efforts? What would it look like for you to run with perseverance the race marked out for us? Maybe for some of us, we are, we are going through some difficult time. 
Maybe there's different challenges we've been facing. We feel tired. We feel exhausted. And it's so tempting to lose your joy, to sort of fall back into kind of a pity party, woe is me, why is God doing this to me, sort of attitude, and doubt. And and this is when we need to say, no, I need to press on in my faith despite these difficulties. I need to have the joy of the Lord. I need to put my hope not in my life getting fixed, but in the hope of eternal life and glorifying God through the difficulties. You know, again, Christianity is not about you become a Christian and God pulls out the big magic wand and bing, you're wealthy, bing, you got what you wanted, bing, that's not how it works. It's about glorifying God by being faithful through all the ups and downs of life by saying to the world, God is worth it and I'm going to follow Him no matter what. Or maybe going forward in the race is for some of us about getting rid of sin in our lives. Maybe there's something that's just wrapped around your ankles. It's slowing you down, holding you back. Perhaps there's specific behavior in your life, some associations, some attitudes, some things you're doing with your life that you know are directly contrary to God's will. That happens as Christians. It's like it just keeps creeping back in. And you've got to keep fighting it back out. It's just a perpetual battle. As Christians, it's like gardening. You always got to be weeding. The weeds keep coming back. Changing metaphors here. You got to keep sin at bay. Maybe there's a grudge you've been nursing like a little baby, and it's just growing and growing. It's time to be done with that grudge, to confess it, and to move on. Or, or maybe it's just a general kind of slacked offness. Maybe it's not anything specific, but you're like, I, I just have kind of gotten lazy in my Christian faith. And perhaps the step for us is to, is to get back to those basics. I need to crack my Bible again. I need to find my Bible. <laughs> then I need to crack it. I need to read it. And I need to start talking to God again. So we call prayer. Just talking to God. Talking to the God who wrote this book and say, God, I, I'm kind of lost. I don't know what happened. I don't know why I'm walking. I used to be running. Help me to run again. Um, Maybe we need to get back into fellowship with other Christians. Is there any other Christians that you meet with on a regular basis to have spiritual conversations and encourage each other in your faith in the church? Maybe it's time to start giving again of your time, to start tithing again, to start serving again, to start reaching out, giving the Gospel. Just whatever it is to start moving forward in your faith. What would it look like for you? I think that's the question to ask. What specifically does God want us to do? And He knows what that is, and you know what that is as well. Or maybe, for you, it's just time to get into the race for the first time. Maybe you've never actually run the race before. You've watched it. See, this race, here's the thing. It's, you've got to be an official participant. You know in the Boston Marathon, you get bandits. They, they sneak in on the side, and they run the marathon even though they don't have the number, and they don't have a little chip on their shoe that calculates their time that you know these people will sneak in you can't sneak into this race you've got to be an official registered participant and god hands out those numbers god is the one who who saves us so maybe for you it's just i need to be, i need to come to faith in christ you need to come to the lord and say i've been on the sidelines i have not put your glory as my uppermost desire i'm a sinner in need of a savior jesus would you forgive me and make me one of your runners and that's the basic prayer to become a Christian. So turn your heart over to the Lord by faith. Because the righteous live by faith. 
It's by faith in Christ that we're saved, not by our works. What is it that God is calling us to do today? Oh, how I want to be able to say of myself and of South Shore Baptist Church what it says in verse 39. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are not of those, but of those who believe and are saved. Let's pray. Would you just take a moment of silent prayer? And I'll just leave it quiet for a minute or so. And, and if there's anything you need to say to God in terms of striving forward in your faith, anything you want to ask of Him, I would just invite you to take this silent prayer time and talk, talk to the Lord. Lord Jesus, hear the prayers of your people. Amen. We come now to the communion table. This is one of the stops along the marathon where we stop to be refreshed. Just like in a marathon, they'll have waters with, tables with waters on them. So we come to, the, to Christ and to His table. Uh, this bread that we eat is a symbol of the body of Christ that was broken on the cross. This cup that we drink is a symbol of the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. And uh, here at South Shore Baptist Church, we practice an open communion. So if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are in the race and you're trusting in Christ as your Savior, then this table is for you. Because by eating these elements, what you're saying symbolically is that you are relying upon and are nourished by Christ, that He is your Savior. Um, one of the, I, I commented on this a couple months ago, but I'll, I'll comment on it again. One of the questions I've been asked several times by parents especially is what to do with kids. Should kids take communion? And, and I, I, I said this before, I'll say it again. I, I discourage you from allowing your children to take communion. And here's why. is because I think a lot of times kids don't fully understand what it means. It's kind of like sort of a glorified snack time. And that's not what this is. This is a time to worship the Lord. Uh, What we've done in our family, just with my own children, is we've said to our children, if you want to take communion, then get baptized. You know, baptism is the symbol of new life in Christ. Communion is the symbol of ongoing life in Christ. So we've just told our kids, you know, if you want to take communion and, and you're a Christian, well, then do what Christians do first. Get baptized. Take a stand and be willing to say to the world, I am a Christian And then do the things that Christians do. And so, again, I'm not saying you have to do that, and and I would just encourage you to talk about that in your own families. But sometimes that can be good, to to deny kids communion. Then they say, why? Then you say, well, let me explain the gospel. It's really an opportunity to teach and and to train your children. So I just encourage you to to be proactive in that, parents. Well, let us come now to the Lord's table and uh, 